So we were in the back having a little lesson on this, and we got them all tied up, and then just the most explosive sounding. So who knows what's happening? We're just we're gonna roll with it. So, good morning. Welcome to Regen. Jack says good morning. He's a little unsure of what's happening. Um, we're so glad that you're here. Um, we hope that you find yourself this morning interrupted by the love and grace of Jesus. Um, and if it's your first time with us, um, we'd love to get to know you better. We'd love to start a relationship with you. We have mugs in the back, so we'd invite you to take one of those as a gift. And then um, we'd love for you to fill out our hay card. And that's if this is your first time or your thousandth time. We'd love to just connect with you and let you know what's going on in our community. So if you fill out that hay card, you'll start getting our weekly emails that just let you know about what's um, coming up. And then if you are on, sorry, there's a lot of grunting going on. Um, if you're on social media, if you would use the hashtag RegenGives, um, that's going to generate a donation for Candace Cooper, who is um, our office uh, manager, and she's going to be going to Thailand um, later this year. And so that's just going to help generate donation to support her in that as well. And then do we have the thank you video? Okay. And then we have a thank you video from the couple who we supported in December. So we'll go ahead and watch that as well. Hi, Regen. We are Andrea, Sheila, and Gabriel Crocivera from Palermo. And we just wanted to say thank you so much for the gift that you guys sent to us a couple months back. We work here in Palermo with Youth for Christ. We've been here for about 10 years now. And it's always so encouraging to know that there are people praying for us and supporting us uh, back in the States. So thank you so much for the part that you played uh, here recently. Ciao. Ciao. Bye. Say ciao. Bye. So thank you so much. And that's just that you know that your, your check-ins do make a difference and you are supporting them. And then I'm going to put Joey on the spot and ask him to pray for our offering. So if he would do that, and um, we'll pass the buckets. Lord, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you so much that you meet us in it. And um, God, you said that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And today we're all just a little bit weaker because of losing sleep. Um, so may your perfection just shine out all the brighter because of that. Thank you so much for blessing this offering and the rest of our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen. phrase came to mind that we are the inheritors of a revival, that we are watching the goodness of God become on display in our lives in new ways in this generation, that we are the inheritors of revival. God, you are bringing renewal and refreshment to this place, to these lives, to these hearts, to our worlds. So, God, we do pray for revival over our brokenness and renewal over our disappointment and our hurt. We pray renewal over our frustration. We pray revival over our anger. God, we pray revival over the distance we have put between us and you. And we pray that we would be a community on fire with passion for your presence. We are the inheritors of revival. God, I am not the hero of the story of this sermon. I am not the hero of the story of this church. You are. I am tired today. I feel like my sermon relies a lot on intellectual capital. And so, Lord, I pray that what there is of me you would remove so that you would speak to your people today, that the surpassing power would belong to you and not to me today. 
pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids can go back with Kayla and Caitlin. Off they go. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 in this series. We're in the middle of about doubt. And uh, this week's sermon and next week's sermon are going to like hang together and interweave. So don't miss next week. Or if you do, make sure you listen online because it's kind of two halves of a whole. A a few years ago, David Kinneman and the Barna Research Group released a book trying to understand a phenomenon we all understood. So the phenomenon was 18 to 29-year-olds are leaving the church in droves. That was no secret. But the book sought to understand why. One of the chapters in that book has to deal with doubt. And in essence, it says that one of the reasons that 18 to 29-year-olds have left the church is because in their experience, the church did not do a good job with doubt. Of the 18 to 29-year-olds surveyed, 50% indicated that they feel they can't ask their most pressing life questions in church. 35% indicated they have significant intellectual doubts about their faith. 27% indicated that they had a crisis in life that caused them to doubt their faith. So this study is doing research with 18 to 29-year-olds, but I can tell you with certainty that there are a lot of people in our community, here in Trumbull County, here in Portage County, here in our region, there's a lot of people in your life, in your circles, your friends, your family, who are younger than 18 to 29 or older than 18 to 29, and they feel the exact same way. What I like about being a pastor is that people tell me very interesting things. So I'll be in a variety of settings, and someone will find out I'm a pastor. So this week, um, I had a mole removed. So dad joke coming in at you hot. I'm holier today than when you last saw me. (laughs) And uh, so I'm, you know, the intake nurse is sitting there, and they ask, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh. (laughs) I was like, Yeah. Um, sometimes my favorite version of that is when people like have been talking to me and they're cussing up a storm and then I'm like, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they just like horror is all over their face. Right. And then they say like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, you've not said, oh my gosh, like since you were two, you know, (laughs) that's not. So sometimes when I'm tell people I'm a pastor, they clam up. Sometimes they tell me weird things. I was at a bank once and happen to mention, they ask, you know, what do you do? I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. And so they go on to tell me this very interesting story about how the night their mother died, this person and their siblings like had a campfire in the backyard and somebody took a picture and in the smoke of the fire, you could see like the, their mom. And they're like showing me pictures on their phone and then swiping over. This is my mom and swiping back. This is, can't you see her in the fire? And I'm like, Anything I, what do I need to say to get out of this conversation, right? This is weird. But sometimes, sometimes people find I'm a pastor and they actually get really honest with me. And uh, people of all ages, of all generations I have met who share heartbreak and grief and confusion and often doubts, people who say, I had significant questions about faith. 
I had uh, significant questions about Christianity, but I couldn't really talk about it. Because when I did try to talk about it, when I shared my questions, when I shared my doubts, I was offered pat answers, and sometimes even I was ridiculed and shamed. And, and whether or not it's true about our church right now, this little community of people, as people drive by our building on a Sunday morning, their operating assumption is that we're bad at doubt that we're a room full of certainty. And whether or not it's true of us right now, I want us as a church to press into doubt. I want us to have a better understanding of what the Bible means when it uses words like doubt and when it uses words like faith. I want us to be merciful and compassionate to those who doubt because Jude one i I'm going to show you this at the end of the sermon. Jude one twenty two says, have mercy on those who doubt. Not talk them into believing the right things, not shame them for asking questions. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. And so my proposal for us this morning is that doubt is a friend. It is not a foe. And in the words of Friedrich Beekner, which actually on your study guide, it says that this, that the recommended resources that we post online actually says this is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was wrong about that. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. We want to be a church that is awake and moving. And so in that spirit, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark, one of the gospel stories, one of the Jesus stories of the New Testament, In Mark chapter 9, we're looking at, starting at verse 14, says this. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. And when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so that you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. There's a whole other sermon I'm wanting to preach on. I gave him to your disciples to cast out, and they couldn't do it. That's interesting, right? So keep going. Verse 19. Jesus said, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and it fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Verse 23. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. ESV says, I believe, help my unbelief. Then Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, and he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen. By the way, Jesus never yelled at demons. He didn't have to. She probably said, listen. You spirit that makes this boy unable to speak, you there, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. 
The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? He replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Other versions say prayer and fasting. This is a compelling text, right? Here we have this desperate father who, for as long as he can remember, has this child who we would now say has epilepsy or has this, who in the biblical imagination, and I think this is not ancient thinking, this is true, he has a demon possession that has threatened his life his whole life long. Anytime that he gets near water, he gets thrown in. Anytime he gets near fire, he gets thrown in because this demon living inside this boy is actively trying to kill him. He has never heard his son speak because he keeps his mouth clenched tight. He foams at the mouth. He seizes. And so this desperate dad hears of this Jesus of Nazareth, hears that he's coming through town, brings his boy to the disciples of Jesus. To his disappointment, the disciples can't do anything. The apprentices of Jesus can't do anything. But to his luck, Jesus comes walking into the center of the crowd. And here's what I want you to notice is this exchange that happens in the second half of verse 22 to the first half of 26. The man says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can... He said, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out. Now this text is striking to us. This interchange is striking us, or it should be when we look closely, because many of us are surprised to find that, the, that Jesus is willing to heal the man's son, even as he confesses in front of everybody his doubt. Isn't Jesus not supposed to do it if the man doesn't believe? And yet, Jesus does it. We think it shouldn't happen. We think because doubt and faith cannot occupy the same space, because belief and unbelief cannot occupy the same space, that Jesus should be stopped by this man's weak faith. But he's not. Jesus works a powerful miracle. We assume that God is limited by the purity or intensity of our faith, but that's because we have come to have an unbiblical definition of the word faith. Faith is not psychological certainty, but relational trust. If you're taking notes, write that phrase down. Faith is not psychological certainty, but relational trust. In faith, we are asked not to sign on the bottom line of a list of proposals and doctrines and beliefs. Instead, we enter into covenant relationship with a person. Faith is not psychological certainty, which to be fair, that's what it sounds like Jesus is saying there in verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Well, if all things are possible, that means if I can drum up and put together and squeeze together enough psychological certainty, I can do anything. But that's not the faith that Jesus has in mind here. He's speaking to relational trust. Jesus heals the boy because that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus is his own person. That's a key factor. The desperate father doesn't need psychological surgery, psychological surgery, no, psychological certainty to get Jesus to act. He simply needs to express relational trust. And notice that the relational trust this man offers Jesus is wimpy at best. 
He's so far away from psychologically certain that he's nowhere near all that deep of a trust in what Jesus can do, if you can. And yet Jesus responds. This man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus responds, this is good news. It is good news that Jesus is not limited by our doubt. And that's because the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith isn't is certainty. Um, some of you may disagree with me. I'm right, you're wrong. Um, and I'll show you how in the text. We, we know that there's a couple different kinds of doubt, right? We know that there's a couple different kinds of doubt. Frederick Buechner in this quote where he says, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. He goes on to say that there are two principal kinds of doubt. Doubt of the head and the other of the stomach. In my head, he says, there is almost nothing I can't doubt when the fit is upon me, the divinity of Christ, the efficacy or the effectiveness of the sacrament, the significance of the church. Anybody ever doubt the significance of the church? Hello, I work for one. Um, The existence of God. But even when I am at my most skeptical, he says, I go through my life as if nothing untoward has happened. He says, I've never experienced stomach doubt. Lucky guy. But I think Jesus did. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think he was raising a theological issue any more than he was quoting Psalm 22. I think he had looked into the abyss itself and found there a darkness that spiritually, viscerally, totally engulfed him. I think that God allows that kind of darkness to happen only to God's saints. The rest of us aren't up to doubting that way or maybe believing that way either. When our faith is strongest, we believe with our hearts as well as our heads. But only at a few rare moments, I think, do we feel in our stomachs what it must be like to be engulfed by light. He says there's two principal kinds of doubt. Doubt of the head and doubt of the stomach. Doubt of the head are those intellectual questions that cross our minds sometimes. Is the Bible accurate? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is it really true that God created the world in six 24-hour periods? If you want to get in trouble, say out loud, I don't think that could happen. And in some circles, it's like, (laughs) in other circles, say out loud, you know, I actually really think that women are allowed to preach and lead in the church. (laughs) These are doubts of the head, intellectual questions. Sometimes, which by the way, on the women issue, I think maybe the the calendar is pretty full, but I think in January, we're going to do a deep dive on that. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And uh, the Bible encourages women to go into ministry. So that'll be fun. Can I tell you? Let me just, I have a minute. Let me tell you. I was listening to a, I was listening to a pastor teach on this. And he, they're teaching on how their church's practices to ordain women in a ministry and these kinds of things. And he said, here's our goal with this series. Our goal is that if you do not think this is what the Bible says, to change your mind. Our goal is that if you do not think this is the Bible, what the Bible says, to get you to disagree more charitably with others. That di- and, and he said, and if the other two things can't happen, the goal of this series is to get you to leave our church. I thought, I was like, that is awesome. Um, there's doubts of the head. And then there's these doubts of the heart. That, these doubts of the stomach, I mean. These doubts of the stomach that arise after a crisis. After the death of a loved one. 
after a miscarriage, after an unfortunate diagnosis. Some of us have stomach doubt when we've been really profoundly wounded by a church, profoundly wounded by the moral failing of a pastor. This is stomach doubt. Now, some of us have gotten bold and we vocalized our doubts of the head or the doubts of the stomach, and we've met, been met with pat answers, and we've been met sometimes with ridicule and shame. And I think people respond this way. Let's give some benefit of the doubt. When people kind of respond in an unfriendly or hostile way to our expressions of doubt, in their minds and hearts, they're trying to be biblical. They are. Because they have passages like these in the back of their heads. So say, for example, James 1 that says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I think when somebody expresses doubt, there's this verse kind of in the back of their head and and the back of their heart, and they're like, hey, I don't want you tossed to and fro like the wind of the sea. I think that's what they mean when they say harsh things. There's this verse in Mark, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. We see these verses, we're like, okay, well, doubt must not be good. So when somebody expresses doubt, hey, let me try to pull you back from that. But here's the problem. When you read these passages in context, and when you read them through the lens, not of psychological certainty, but of relational trust, we actually get closer to what the Bible is actually trying to communicate to us. So first of all, this James 1 passage. Any text without a context is a pretext. It's wrong. And so the context of James 1 is a person who needs wisdom to get through their life, who needs wisdom, and they are wavering. That's actually the literal word of this word doubt, and actually in the New Living Translation, that's how they render it. They are wavering between seeking wisdom from the world and seeking wisdom from God. That is not a good kind of wavering. In fact, that is a bad kind of doubt for someone following Jesus. Because when we follow Jesus, Jesus is the Lord of our life. And so we do not waver, well, we shouldn't, a lot of us do, between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. We want to lean into godly wisdom. And so James is warning against going back to the world for wisdom. But he's not warning against doubt, as you and I understand these like questions that come up in the shower or in the middle of the night or after a crisis. And, and this idea of do not doubt in your heart but believes what he says, again, it reads like Jesus is saying psychological certainty, that if I can drum up enough faith, I can move this mountain. If I can drum up enough faith, I can pray and that person will be healed. If I can drum up enough faith and psychological certainty, next week we will need a bigger building because our church will be 3,000 people. If I have enough faith then, and I believe it, it becomes a game of psychological certainty. But that's not what doubt and faith mean. Doubt is not an absence of psychological certainty. Here's a good example. Remember, there's this story in the New Testament. The disciples are out on a boat. There's a storm, and Jesus comes walking on the water toward them. And Jesus says to Peter, hey, come out here. So Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on water toward Jesus. And the text says he kind of freaks out, so he starts to sink. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him up, and this is what he says. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Is Jesus saying, you know, Peter, if you had, like, dug up enough psychological certainty, you could have kept walking on the water. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, you had a failure of relational trust in me. There was a failure of relational trust in me. If we believe, if we say, be taken up to the mountain and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says, it's not getting up enough belief in what I say to make it happen. It's does what I am saying equate with relational trust, not psychological certainty. 
Earlier I said that doubt is not a foe, it's a friend. Earlier I said the opposite of doubt, the opposite of faith, faith isn't doubt, the opposite of faith isn't, is certainty, and this is only possible if we define faith as something relational. It is only possible if we view our faith not as an adherence to doctrine and dogma, but as a covenant relationship with another person. We're going to look more at this next week. When you are in relationship with a person, let me tell you what you find. This person is going to do their own thing. Listen, Jack is seven weeks old, and I've already figured out he's just going to do his own thing. Right? I cannot control him. I cannot get him onto my schedule. I cannot. There are times where he surprises me and frustrates me and disappoints me. Let me tell you, I've been with Steph for 10 years. We've been married for seven this coming June. There are times when I surprise and frustrate and disappoint her because I'm my own person and I'm doing my own thing. I'm not controllable. She's not controllable. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids to know this. Have you had a best friend that made you crazy? Yeah, because you were in a relationship with a person. And when you're in a relationship with a person, they're, they're, they're going to do their own thing. And there's always going to be mystery involved because you cannot know everything about a person. Have you ever been with like a married couple and they've been married for like 40 or 50 years and they'll tell a story and their partner will go like, I never knew that. Right? I mean, some of you have married a long time. Have you ever looked at your spouse and said, I don't even know who you are? Who is this person? In following Jesus, we enter into relationship with the God of the universe, and the gospel of Jesus brings us into relationship with that God, and the most common word the New Testament used to, well, one of the most common words the New Testament uses to describe that is the word mystery. Mystery. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. When you're in a relationship, relationship implies mystery, because I cannot predict with any accuracy what a person is going to do. I will be surprised and frustrated and disappointed. And the word mystery is what the gospel is described at in the New Testament. Colossians 1, to God, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want to know the hope of the gospel? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. First Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Mystery is the very nature of our faith, which makes psychological certainty impossible. Because mystery is the nature of our faith, because mystery is inherent in the very word faith, because we are in relationship with a person who will at times surprise and disappoint and frustrate us, because we are in relationship with a God who is beyond our understanding, the only kind of faith we can have is relational trust. We can only trust in what we know and what we know of his character, which is consistent and yet still surprising. And because mystery is the nature of our faith, because mystery is inherent in the very word faith, because we are in relationship with a person who will at times surprise and disappoint and frustrate us, because we are in relationship with a God who is beyond our understanding, doubt is going to be a necessary and ongoing part of our journey with God. George MacDonald says, a man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. I think there's a difference 
fact, I know there's a difference between unbelieving faith and believing faith. Nope. Change that. There's a difference between unbelieving doubt. See, that makes more sense. And believing doubt. Unbelieving doubt is kind of what we see in like nasty YouTube video comments on the internet, right? How can I aggressively and nastily and grossly poke holes in Christianity in a way to tear others down? How can I be like just all out with my unbelief? And when an earnest follower of Jesus begins to have some questions arise on their heads in the middle of the night, I think our fear is that we're slipping into unbelieving doubt. But when this desperate father says, I believe, help my unbelief, what he's actually articulating is believing doubt. Here's what I do believe. Here's what I know. Here's the trust that I have. Here's the mountain of things that I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. When you wake up in the middle of the night with a question, is the Bible really true? Is it really reliable? Is Jesus the son of God? Is it really possible that evolution is a falsehood? Is, is, is it possible that Jesus is both entirely divine and entirely human? When these things sneak into our head, the answer is not to panic. The answer is not to freak out. The answer is not to think about them. Have you ever tried not to think about anything? Have you ever tried not to think about pink elephants? Go ahead and try. Do not think about pink elephants. Do not think about this large creature with four legs and big ears and tusks and a thing that's pink. You know, the color of like Valentine's Day. Don't think about that. Don't, don't, nope. Don't let it. That's what we do with doubt. It creeps in our minds and we run away from it instead of looking at it as a messenger of the living one to the honest. I wonder if maybe what we need is a more honest faith, not a more certain one. Doubt is a necessary part of being in a relationship with God who is beyond our understanding, and it might be a friend, because instead of this messenger of the enemy that proves I'm a sinner and proves that I've got weak faith, instead, it's God calling us deeper. It's God calling us deeper. So let me offer a quick summary. First, faith is not about psychological certainty, which I think is important an important correction to those of us who have negative feelings toward or negative experiences of the charismatic, more Pentecostal tradition, right? Where um, this kind of word of faith, like if I pray hard enough and believe hard enough, God will heal this person. And because I prayed really hard and God didn't heal that person, I must have not been certain enough. I must not have had enough faith. That is damaging and unbiblical. It is not the intensity of our faith that moves God. We're in covenant relationship with a person who sometimes hears us and responds and sometimes just doesn't. Um, I think, by the way, that God still speaks through his people by offering prophetic word. I think the miraculous, namely healing, are still part of the way that God works today. I think we've closed ourselves off to those things. Randy Clark, um, who runs like a global healing ministry, um, he prays for people to be healed all the time, and God only heals like one out of ten of them. So there's two ways to interpret that. One, I didn't have enough psychological certainty. Randy didn't have enough psychological certainty for this person to be healed. Or I prayed, and in this covenant relationship with a God I do not fully understand, God chose not to respond, and yet I still trust his character. We're going to get more into that next week. 
but I think it's I think it can be refreshing and restorative those of us who have been kind of damaged by these more word of faith charismatic traditions these kind of caricatures or like extremes of the charismatic tradition I think it can be helpful to know that like what God isn't looking for is for you to double down on the intensity of your faith God is just looking for you to walk with him covenant relationship so faith is not about psychological certainty I'm trying to make sure I kind of brought in other content on the fly. So I think those are the two pieces that I wanted to make sure I hit there. So faith is not about psychological certainty. It's about relational trust. As such, because we're in a relationship with a living person, mystery is always going to be a necessary part of our life with God. We have, a, and here's, we have an opportunity to tell you a story about that. My wife and I have had three miscarriages and a son. And every time we prayed profoundly, I mean, like Joey and Julia, like have prayed for our child probably more than we have. I mean, a lot of you prayed for us through this season. And um, I had to really wrestle with, like, I was, I mean, there were some times, there were a couple times where like people said some things to us, like Mitch was with me. I was in, we went and visited somebody in a nursing home. A guy comes up to us and says, I want you to read this passage of scripture. And he opens it and slides across the table to me. And it says like, all of these promises about being in the land, neither shall you miscarry nor shall you be barren. So I'm like weeping and thinking, okay, like this is God's promise to me that the next time we get pregnant, like we had two more miscarriages after that. Right. And so was it my lack of certainty that killed our children? Was it our lack of certainty that, like, stopped God from doing what he was going to do? Did we get especially certain? Did, like, we get five extra people praying for Jack this time, so then that, like, pushed over the edge? Or are we in covenant relationship with a God who will sometimes surprise, frustrate, and disappoint us, and yet whose character remains consistent? We are in relationship with a person. And I do not understand why he does or does not do the things he does or does not do. But we walk in relationship with him, trusting in what we know of him. And we're going to look at this next week. We're going to look at it next week. If you want to read ahead, Genesis 22, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, or near sacrifice of Isaac. Is is exactly what it looks like to walk by faith, not with psychological certainty, but in relational trust and covenant relationship. Mystery is a necessary part of our life with God. Mystery necessitates questions and doubts. And by the way, the week after next is when we talk about what do we do when God doesn't do what we wanted him to do. That's where lament comes in. Or lament, if you're interested in that. In other words, you're going to have questions. You're going to have these big, heady questions about big topics like evolution and authority of the Bible and the divinity of Jesus and ordination of women. You have doubts deep down in your stomach about God's character and how he is, is or isn't behaving in your life and the life of others. And when doubts arise, it is not a sign of a defective faith. It is not a sign of sin. It is not a sign of weakness. Instead, doubts are an invitation to go deeper. They are messengers of the living one to the honest. So one night you're going to be up in the middle of the night and you're going to wonder, how is it possible that Jesus is fully God and fully divine? Hell. I mean, really, like this place that people go, uh, I don't know. How is it possible that bad things happen to good people? The biblical question, by the way, is how is it possible that good things happen to bad people? Interesting. But when that happens, the first thing to notice is the doubt itself. And to say in your mind, hi there. Hello. Hello. I see you there asking that question. Not, oh my gosh, I'm such a bad Christian. 
I shouldn't be thinking about these things. If my pastor finds out about this, if my small group finds out about this, if my circle leaders find out about this, they are going to yell at me. No, 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 don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that. Don't, like, turn up the worship music louder until you sing them away. Notice the question and say, hi. And then here's what I would like you to do. I think this is the biblical thing. It's time to put on your big boy jeans and go to work. Because here's what we do. And this, this started when I was a youth pastor. And again, it's not a high school thing. It's an everybody thing. I have this question about the faith. Let me Google it. Nightmare, number one. Don't Google. That's, no. Um, but there's this interesting verse in Acts 17, Acts 17, that I think helps us know what to do when we experience that. It says, the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Like, don't have a question about, like, the existence of hell and go onto YouTube and find some nut job yelling into the camera about why hell is fake and why God is bad. There are smart Christians. You cannot confess that Jesus is Lord without confessing that Jesus is smart. And here's what the enemy really wants us to do with our doubts. He wants us to have them. He wants us to look at YouTube videos and talks by atheists who want to poke holes in our faith and then to say, oh, they must be right and I must be wrong. Do you know what the enemy hates when it comes to doubt? Is when a Christian picks up a book to understand their question more. The enemy hates when we pick up our Bible to understand the question more. If you have doubts about the divinity of Jesus, read the Gospels. If you have doubts about the way that God created the world, read Genesis. Like, and, and, and let's look for it. One of my favorite things that happens is you'll, one of you will end up in a conversation uh, in the middle of your work day with somebody that's asking you a really hard question, and I get a panicked text. How do I answer this question? I do not respond quickly to those. Here's why. They're asking you. They're not asking me. And the Bible says, Jesus says, um, that when you are put in front of men and they ask you questions, he says judges, but when you're put in front of men to speak and you don't know what to say, he says, I will give you the words to speak. Don't worry about it. Your imperfect answer is way better than my accurate one. And then afterwards I answer, and then you go read. It's good. Um, when you have doubts, look it in the face and chase it down. Say to me, I have legit questions. I was just having a conversation this week. I have legit questions about six-day literal creation. Fun fact, I have significant doubts about six-day literal creation. We'll talk about that more next week. Let's not just look at YouTube videos by some ticked-off 16-year-old. Okay? And when someone shares a doubt, and when someone shares a doubt, when they say, I really have a question about this, can I ask you to do me a favor? Can you not say something that rhymes? Can you not sound something, say something sing-songy? If it is memorable and pithy and can fit on a T-shirt, it's probably false. God won't give me more than I can handle. False. If you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Shut up. <laughs> I'm 18. My parents have divorced. Our pastor's wife comes up to me and says, well, praise the Lord, he's still on the throne. And I punched her in the face. <laughs> in my imagination. Is she wrong? No. 
do not, when someone expresses a doubt, say, I was walking through Hobby Lobby, and one of the signs said this. Let me firmly warn you against treating them like they have cooties. Don't tell me that because I might catch it. Right? Do not rid how can you do not say, how could you think that? This verse in Jude 122, it says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Be tender. Be kind. When your kids say, Mom, I don't know if I think this is true. Say, that's a really good question. When somebody says, I really wrestle with this idea, say, me too. When somebody says, I have a doubt about this thing, say the words, tell me more about that. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Your first response to somebody who is doubting is to treat them with grace and gentleness, not like they are like the only Steelers fan wearing a Steelers jersey in the Brown Stadium, right? And I think when we face doubt, when, when you ask, when a big question crosses your mind in the middle of the night, maybe the best prayer that we have is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. God, we bring you our questions. We bring you our doubts. We bring you um, our worries and our wonders. And we're so glad that you're a God outside of our understanding. God, if we could fully comprehend you, you would not be worthy of worship. And so thank you that you always, just when we think we have you nailed down, you kind of dance out of our grasp. That you're always just there on the edge of our fingertips, close enough for us to touch, but Uh, close enough to have to keep chasing. So we offer you our doubts today. We offer you our questions of the head and of of the stomach and ask that you would speak good news to us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to guess at a plan and then we're going to make that the plan. Is that okay? A well-oiled machine. Um... Let's take a couple minutes, and if you've got a doubt, can you bring that to the Lord? Okay? And then we're going to stand and sing the entirety of this song, and then we're going to do communion, and we're going to get out of here. Does that work in some way, shape, or form? Or do you want to do like two verses, and then tell me what you want? I don't know what I mean. <laughs> what? I want to give some response time. I would like us to sing a little bit. I'd like us to take communion. You can, you can take us from there. Julie, I'm just, that's great. This is like the most we've talked about Sunday worship all week, so this is good. So go to the Lord. And that question or questions that you have, can you just bring them to mind? Lord, thank you that you are beyond our comprehension and our understanding and Lord, as we walk this mystery, which is profound, Lord, we pray that we would embrace it. We pray that we would offer you not our certainty, but our trust. 
Thanks, Jesus, for being here with us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you so much. We'll see you next time.